didn't you also lay that trap for them? I mean, when you look back at your work in 2016, weren't you one of the people who helped make the alt-right part of the Trump movement? Weren't you out there? Well, I, would it, I would put it this way. I would say that we wanted votes to support Trump, right? And however we got those votes, legally, I should say, you know, I support. Like, I believe that, you know, all Americans have a right to vote. And if they exercise that vote in ways that I find objectionable or terrible or whatever, I think that that is in itself a sentiment to the system as a whole. So the way I would put it is Trump, as much as one might dislike him, got people voting and engaged that had never previously been engaged. And what started out in an innocuous way, a lot of these groups that were forming online, you know, these sort of like Slack groups and Facebook groups and Twitter groups, they would often get weird people that would come in there and try and get the group to behave in ways that were against the long-term interests of the group members. And I saw a lot of this. I saw like the way in which foreign actors would get into people's, you know, signal groups or, and they would try to whip people into a crowd and use, you know, disinformation, misinformation techniques. And the case of Bannon and the alt-right, you know, I think that there is a case to be made that globalization has gone too far and that it's actually harmed the interests of the United States and sort of the Western powers, that we've allowed too much money to come in from China, affecting our real estate markets, our colleges. So what I feel is my view of it is that Trump's critiques were actually, they were a con, right? People would wave the flag in the back room. There would be all the real deals being done by Jared Kushner and others. Mm -hmm. They were actually harming the United States. And I should say too that, you know, yes, I don't apologize for helping Trump get elected. I do think that my critique of the Republican Party is that it was so weak that it could be beaten by a failed reality TV star. And that's kind of a tell of how weak our system is generally. Trump is basically the final culmination of many generations of basically not keeping our eye on the ball as a country. Um, For sure, I agree with all of what you're saying, but just to put you on the line a little bit here, you know, your role under Bannon was to go after the alt-right, to uh, touch with them, to whatever it is you coordinated with them. That's right, I would ingratiate myself with them, talk to them. You know, I convinced Malik Obama, of all people, also to back Trump. So it wasn't just, it was all these fringe groups that would That you were giving a voice to that would not normally have got a voice to. You know, 10 years later, eight years later, whatever you want to call it, we're looking at a January the 6th, you know, one year later that we're horrified by what happened last year. Do you think you played any role in legitimizing these groups, in these fringe groups, in these neo-Nazi groups, in all these organizations which landed up having much more prominence at the time? I definitely wouldn't do it today, for one. I think that we didn't understand the magnitude of some of these groups at the time. Mm -hmm. And I do think that one of the ways to take really hateful groups is actually, and defang them, is to engage with them. And so I'm very much of a view that you should go and talk to people rather than demonizing them and pushing them off to the to the margins. And I agree with, you know, Francis Hogan makes this argument around Mark Zuckerberg, you know, rather than condemn Mark Zuckerberg and talk about how evil he is, she tries to encourage the better angels of his nature. And I'm generally of the view, you know, I'm a believing Christian, you know, I'm of the view that when two are gathered in the name of peace and of coming together, that's a good thing. But I will say, like, I have been disturbed to watch people that I knew who, you know, they lost their integrity, they lost their sense of self during the Trump presidency. And I fortunately think that, you know, you could make a case for Trump being elected, you could make a case even for him starting out as an okay president. 
But as time grew on, you know, he essentially left the country in a worse shape in many different domains. And I think that absolutely I had a role to play in that. I think, as I said, though, I think in a choice between the Clinton crime family and the Trump crime family, I prefer the more inept criminals in the form of the Trump people than in the form of the Clinton people who I think are smooth criminals would be the way. Yeah, I'm going to say that your, your comment there about the Clinton crime family is not being proven. I know there's certainly allegations about that and there's certainly contemplations around that. But there has been a lot proven about the Trump family being a crime family. You know, I've, I've tried to report this as objectively as I can. I've not seen any evidence that is completely, uh, you know, tight and, and bulletproof saying that the Clintons are involved in any organized criminal activity. Well, we do have the evidence of the Clinton Global Initiative, which was seemed to have been a number of foreign countries from around the world spending money to influence who they thought would be the next president, right? It, it could be that that's what they were doing. It could be they were just spending money on the Clinton Global Initiative, which was in itself doing a lot of good work around the world. I would be very skeptical of that in much the mm. same way that I'm of the view that, you know, anyone who is traveling around with Jeffrey Epstein, I think we need to take a very close look at, and that includes, you know, Bill Gates, that includes, I think we are not comfortable yet as a society to have a conversation of, about the role of political blackmail. And I should say one other thing too, you know, I read David Brin is a very good science fiction writer and he's, you know, a lefty guy, you know, somebody who was very influential to me as a kid reading his work on the Transparent Society and on facial recognition generally. And I should say, you know, he wrote this essay about political blackmail and I would see it with Kevin McCarthy or with other members of the House or with Trump, where the action that they would take would be so different from what I thought. And I used to believe that the powers that be in politics were the corporation, mm -hmm. that they were the ones really driving a lot of the shots. I no longer believe that. I think it's very clearly foreign intelligence operations and billionaires who are propped up in constructs of these foreign intelligence operations. And I've met a number of them and want to just tell people about what I saw and what I experienced. And I was very much a true believer and very naive about how I thought the world worked. And I think partly this is the difference between your 20s and your 30s, you know, but until so uh, you get your 40s, then it, yeah. <laughs> it changes again. You, what you're pointing out is really fascinating. I mean, let's talk a little bit about how you intertwined into the Epstein universe, because you met Epstein really early on and you were working for Alan Dershowitz when you were still yeah. in high school. I was 16 when I first met Alan Dersh or met uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, and I'm now 33. So, like, so I mean, you knew him for a lot longer than anybody else. How did that come about? How did it come about that you worked for Dershowitz and how did uh, you first meet Epstein? I was randomly selected to debate Alan Dershowitz in front of my high school when I was a student. His daughter, Ella, was the year below me at a prep school where I was a scholarship winner. And I met him. He was very personable, very friendly. I liked how rigorous his thinking was. I didn't really understand a lot of these things around OJ and around Epstein. You know, he seemed to write books about the Constitution. I was vaguely interested in the Constitution. Mostly it was preferable to working for my parents' business or for like, you know, typical jobs that 16 year olds would get. Right. And, you know, I spent the previous summer like painting houses and working at my father's rental properties. And here I was at Harvard Law School, you know, editing, you know, books and writing things and getting access to the to the Harvard library system, which is, I think, one of the best in the world. And I could check out anything I wanted, which was amazing. And so anyway, I met Dershowitz, you know, he said, you can come work for me. And um, I met Dershowitz in the context of my high school. I liked him. He was very friendly to me. 
I was the only non-Jew who worked for him, which was interesting. And I sort of got to see sort of the inside of Harvard. I got to meet Larry Summers, of course, which was interesting. I got to meet a number of sort of people who were friendly with Dershowitz, including Steven Pinker, the academic. And what was interesting to me about Epstein was nothing kind of made sense at the time. You know, Epstein would call and then there would be like no payment. You know, there would be like very little evidence by way of Epstein being a legitimate actor. And of course, Alan was very involved in, you know, operations involving the Israeli government. Yeah. You know, he's very pro-Israel in all those ways. And so that was when I first met Epstein and dealt with him on the phone. And I used to sit right next to Dershowitz, take the phone calls from Jeffrey and take notes. And yeah, the whole experience was very crazy. And then, of course, he he did the plea deal after I left the office to go work, uh, to go to college in California. But I sort of kept somewhat abreast of it, felt that, you know, at the time I felt that the case was pretty sad and sick. I mean, there were a number of people who had also dropped their children off at Jeffrey Epstein's place and he had a reputation, but I did think he was entitled to a defense and it was very interesting at the time. It was enough to make you say, well, I shouldn't be anywhere involved in any of this and what's my mentor here, Dershowitz, doing? I mean, did it give you any pause? You know, it it did a little bit, but, you know, I mostly worked on his books, uh, you know, so that was one thing, but it did give me some pause, but I do believe, like, you know, we we represented murderers as well, right? We represented Mm. some of, like, the worst the worst criminals. And so I do believe that they are entitled to their defense. Now, in retrospect, I was very autistically abstract in my thinking around, you know, people's Sixth Amendment rights. And I've gotten in trouble before for basically taking a very legalistic view of, say, the First Amendment, right? Like, I think we need to kind of keep in mind the spirit of these amendments. So, you know, in the past, I've helped raise money for, you know, controversial groups because I think that they have a right to a legal defense. My current view probably would be to take a much more careful look at those sorts of things, to be much more discerning, much less willing to attach my own name to them. And I think, I do still believe though that like we do have trial by jury we should encourage people to go to court systems in fact part of the reason i'm very actually grateful that we have the country we have is you know we had a president and we had a lot of disputed election we've had many disputed elections in this country i think people don't really know their history here like i mean this goes back to the founding of the country and thomas jefferson and adams and all that and what i liked about our system is that we had vehicles for redress for the court system, you know, peaceful protests. There are lots of ways that people could make their voice heard. And I'm very grateful that we have court systems in general. And so I personally have sued. I sued in the Gawker case, which we won. I sued in a Twitter case, which we lost. I'm currently suing the Huffington Post, which it's my view. They're controlled by foreign entities. We may go into that another time. But um, my view is that I'm not afraid of courts or of legal institutions or of the legal system. In fact, I think There are lots of ways we should be encouraging and strengthening these as checks on authoritarianism or on mobs in our society. How do you afford all this? It sounds like a lot of legal bills to pay. Well, I've been very lucky in terms of my investments. As people know, I was involved in co-founding Clearview AI. I've invested in a number of companies, a lot of which that do business with the government, which I should say too, people often accuse me of being like this crazy, you know, white supremacist, or whatever. It's not really true. Uh, it's sort of an attack vehicle that sometimes foreign governments that don't like the things I'm investing in, you know, they use the fact of my 2016, 2017 involvement with some of these controversial groups. And they say, I therefore must believe those things. But I don't. I mean, I, I said in number of things in 2016 that I regret. Um, 
you know, probably the biggest thing I regret around 2016 that I comes actually from the night of the election when I sent a message to my brother saying that I thought Trump could really pull us all together as a society, which is just totally wrong and stupid. Mm-hmm. But so I said and did a lot of stupid, you know, 20 somethings things that you do. At the time I was heavily drunk, you know, drink a lot going to these political events. I'm not the most social person, so I used to use alcohol as a vehicle for doing that. Uh, I celebrated my first year of sobriety on uh, Christmas Eve. And so, uh, thank you. So one of the things too, is that as I've spent less time online and sort of building my businesses and working in my businesses, I've spent a lot more time reflecting on, Hey, what was that conversation about? Like I've gotten a lot more information about the way the world works just from what's happened to people. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I've seen that Bannon has done and other folks have done. Roger Stone has done that are pretty fucked up. And you don't really pick up on these things when you're in the moment with it, right? Like the point of when you're in 2016, you're trying to win the election, right? You're trying to defeat the Clintons. Mm -hmm. And then when he wins, you then see how he governs and you're like, oh man, this is crazy. This is an insane kind of thing. And so that was, to my mind, what was most revealing. And then of course, I had known the Kushners because I'd known Josh Kushner from from my sort of Harvard days as a student there. And I'd run into him. I'd run into them on other things in New York. And they always struck me as like vaguely criminal. And so I think their father actually was a criminal uh, who actually was bled out. And what I started to realize is like, actually the, the Kushners are really bad people. And Trump is sort of like, he's the front man. He's not like the real guy. And I had a very naive view that people would just do what they said and that sort of thing. But yes, I've done done very well investing. I, you know, I intend to uh, keep investing in the national interest. You know, Clearview, you know, it's, it's very edifying to me to see Clearview used to identify uh, both people assaulting police on January 6th. By the way, I've always been against violence against police officers and against uh, society generally in part. A lot of my activism around talking about Black Lives Matter was to kind of de-escalate the situation, to sort of like have trials and talk about like, you know, Michael Brown's history and some of the history of some of these folks. Now, I understand in the context now of, you know, there've been a lot of police shootings, but we should also understand that foreign governments use the unfortunate history of American race relations as a way of destabilizing our country. And they always have. They've always played a role in that, mm. going back to the 60s, and even before that. I think you said anyway, something that's it's, it's interesting yeah. there. Sorry, I mean, don't, don't interrupt you if you want to finish that thought. No, okay. I think what you're saying about being, I don't call it naive, because I think we were all sort of naive about Donald Trump in 2016. I, you know, we all sort of marched into that election. Some of us were a little bit more aware than others, but, you know, most of America was sort of bamboozled by this campaign, which promised so much, which seemed maybe on some levels could be interesting, many on others is not. But for the most part, we were all sort of taken aback when we found out so much about him. And for me, in my case, it was just before the elections, but certainly in the months leading after that, when I started narrative, that it became so clear that we were dealing with the Russian asset and beyond, you know, that his entire campaign was filled with operatives doing all sorts of crazy things, whether it's Flynn yeah, or Stone would, or Bannon. Or, they were all there. A little differently, which is I would say that I think Trump was allowed himself to be compromised by a whole bunch of different countries, not just mm-hmm. Russia. Yes, and I agree with you on that. Yeah, that basically Trump, I think the obsessive focus just on the Russians is not really representative. Like, I think there's Chinese money going in around Trump. You can see this with his current SPAC that he's yeah. doing. I think that there's, you know, I mean, Jared Kushner's relationship with Netanyahu goes so far back that, you know, Netanyahu used to sleep in Jared's bed when he was a little mm. kid. And if you follow Charles Kushner's involvement, where essentially they were blackmailing Governor Jim McGreevy, who was the governor of New Jersey, and they were blackmailing him because he was gay, and they were using that to get, you know, developments that they wanted 
wanted to prove in New Jersey. That's so my, my, my view just generally is that there's, yes, I mean, you, you've got the Saudi connection, you've got the Emiratis, which of course are pictured there. You've got the Turks with the, you know, basically- upside down, but anyhow, yes. Yeah, I mean, my view in general with Trump is that I don't think he was a Manchurian president in quite the same way that Nixon was, where Nixon, I think, was compromised for many, many years uh, by the Russians through Armand mm-hmm. Hammer and that network. But I think what he was is he was a pay-to-say player, and he had a bunch of foreign actors who paid him to say things and do things. And that I don't really think there's an ideological conviction to Trump in the final analysis. No, and maybe I think just the money. Yeah, I think it's just about the money. And I think that when you really kind of see that in the final analysis, that's a very important thing to see. Now, I think his message, I should say too, like, you know, the Biden administration has actually banned a number of Chinese companies, a number of Israeli companies that I called for banning during the Trump presidency. So I've actually seen them be much more America first in a way. And that sort of makes me feel like it was the right decision to ultimately support, you know, Biden's peaceful transfer of power. And I should say too, like, you know, I've donated to Sheldon Whitehouse. Like I think Sheldon Whitehouse is right about, you know, the Federalist Society and sort of the foreign money coming in there. And then of course, I also backed AOC because she really gave it to Mark Zuckerberg. But I'm still friendly with a number of people on the conservative side of things. I think there's a number of them that mean well. And I think a lot of us, if we had a real kind of truth and reconciliation about what happened over the last five years, that would be very helpful. And I think that's something that the journalists and historians and others can now begin the process of doing. I hope so. You know, I think now is the time for that. I do want to push back a little bit about Russia because yes, it's we can overstate it, but we can also understate it quite dangerously. I, if, you at, uh, if you look at this, uh, if you I think you're right there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's fair enough. Yep. I mean, you know, just looking at just the insurrection on January the 6th, and if you look at that bottom line of people there, you've got Bannon, who was associated with Russia. You have Ivan Reichlin, who was associated with Russia. You have yep. Michael Flynn, who's associated with Russia. You have uh, Bowsman, Charles Bowsman from Russia Insider, associated with Russia. You have Sean Moon, probably associated with Russia. All these influencing operations, whether it's Infowars or Russian Insider, which we've mentioned, but also the Washington Times uh, and OAN, they all have you know probably Russian ties if they're connected to the way we think they're connected. You've got clearly Giuliani's got some Russian influence there. I'm not sure which of the GOP congressmen that have been named of any Russian connections, but they might. And Roger Stone has too. I mean, there's a lot of Russia floating around, even on January no, the 6th. No doubt about it. But I think there's also, you know, we see that a number of the Proud Boys campaigns had donations to them from China. And I think what my view of, of January 6th, more or less, is that there were a number of countries present. Uh, you can see this with Clearview has actually identified uh, members of four different countries that were present that day. So my view is that there was actually a whole bunch of different players who wanted to overthrow the government there. The Russians, I think, are the largest group there. You know, you can see it's actually Kazakhstan right now, right? There's a, there's a sort of pressure on the government there. They've called on the Russians to help them. But you can see this in the attacks on the Bundestag in uh, in Germany. So yes, there's this symbolic situation here is true. But I think most of the garden variety people that showed up there to protest, you know, what had happened there, I think in general, they are, you know, well-meaning Americans. You know, there's, you know, none of them have been charged with insurrection. I think that's an important, you know, distinction. Whether that happens later that these larger groups will be charged, I think is an interesting question. And how many people here are dupes and how many of them are real true believers, you know, tied in with the Kremlin? I mean, Charles Bosman clearly seems like tied in with the Kremlin. Uh, a number of these cults that have formed, like the Moonies, you know, the Moonies have longstanding ties with the Russians. OAN, you know, there's a lot of these folks who end up having Russian wives. You know, we see this with Parler, the guy who started Parler and Cambridge Analytica has all sorts of weird Russians running around. And we see this, you know, with video platforms like Rumble. I mean, uh, Chris Pavlovsky, you know, is, lives in Toronto, but he's of Macedonian heritage. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of weird Russian money around, you know, around him. So again, like, I don't necessarily think that just taking 
Russian money or being Russia, Russophilic is necessarily a tell of treason, but it certainly should be exposed and discussed in a serious way. Well, especially um, when they're supporting the things that they're supporting, or at least platforming the things that they're platforming. That's right. And, but you have, you know, you have John Eastman there, right? Mm -hmm. And John Eastman has all these interesting ties with the Israelis. You also have Paul Gosar there, who's also got interesting ties with the Israelis. And then, of course, you know, Lauren Boebert as well. So, you know, you look at Mike Flynn is there. I would have probably also included Rod Rosenstein of the Federalist Society and the Federalist mm -hmm. Society generally. I would have included on there. And they're more on the Israeli wing. Uh, well, this is just January the 6th. And I mean, you could say that they were involved in, in January 6th. But yes, absolutely. The well, Federalist the Federalist Society, Society was heavily involved in January 6th, right? They through Eastman. Challenge, right, through Eastman right. and through others. Yeah, of course, Bannon is, of course, very... Bannon is basically, you know, you've got Chinese money with Bannon with Guo. You've mm. got Israeli money with Bannon with ZOA. And of course, you also have the Russian ties with the Mercers. Mm. So he's sort of a trifecta, all equal opportunity type. And so... How does he keep I, it straight? It must get difficult. Well, I should say, too, just because people, you know, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future, right? Yeah. And so I would encourage most of the people who are involved in January 6th in a negative way, that they should really, you know, come forward with what they know and, and help the government where and when they can. And, uh, you know, Roger Stone, I mean, you know, he is very much a pathological liar. I mean, he accused me at one point of being involved in a murder because I was asking questions about him. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the government get much more sophisticated about following the money and following the relationships these people have uh, to foreign governments and foreign entities. And so I think that's all to the good. And I think that should happen in media, that should happen in Silicon Valley, that should happen in crowdfunding. There should be a real like forensic audit across the economy of foreign influence Absolutely. because it's, it's having a real consequence in our quality of life. I totally agree with you on that. Let me ask you, and you don't have to answer this, obviously, but you've talked about people coming forward and helping the government. Have you helped the government? Are you supporting the government in its investigations, whether they might need it? You mentioned yeah, Bannon, but uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always helped the government on projects when they've come to me ever since I was a, a kid, you know, uh, a teenager. And so I didn't realize this at the time, many of the people I was talking to around the government, around Epstein, while I was working for Dershowitz, were people who, were, you know, who had security clearances and ties to the government. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, I've always been of that view. You could see Clearview is contracted with the government in a serious way. Many of the other companies I've worked on are, have contracted with the government. Some have been things I've started and have failed. And in part, that's because I didn't really understand a lot of these larger dynamics. You know, I didn't understand just the degree to which there are real operations running at all times to influence our politics and our information ecosystem online. That is something I didn't get. And the fact that it's, I think it targets, I mean, I think we'll learn soon Elon Musk has a lot of weird ties with the Russians. I think that'll be something that people will see soon. Obviously, we see Sequoia, one of the largest venture funds in the country, has invested in the Chinese war machine. You know, we see the Oregon Pension Fund invested in NSO Group. By the way, when I told the government about NSO and about them hacking people's cell phones without a link, they said I was crazy. And obviously, now that's changed. People now yeah. understand that was real. So, people don't realize that you were the person who did that, or at least one of the people who alerted them. What was that about? Well, that was in part because my cell phone was compromised during the Trump transition. And this is what I was talking about earlier, being, about being hacked. You know, I have enough friends that are technical who are answering, you know, and asking questions about these sorts of things. And I didn't realize, well, how would I put this? I did not realize how much foreign governments influence transitions and how much they try to, like,
like isolate and neutralize certain people who are in those translations, how they smear people. And I've talked a little bit about my involvement, you know, going to go see Julian Assange and helping the government there, which, you know, I have the view that Julian should face his day in court. I've said that before, you know, publicly, I'll say it again. I do think it's inhumane to keep somebody indefinitely in detention, you know, either try him or take him out of the embassy or what have you. And so I was asked because people knew that I had a relationship with Assange or could get in a relationship with him because Dershowitz and others had represented him. And by the way, Assange told me while I was there that it was not just the Russians, it was a whole host of different entities and different governments sending him material. And so, yeah, that's still weird. I mean, you know, no one, I, you know, how hard is it to get to see Assange? That can't be an easy knock on the door thing. (laughs) How do you end up organizing that meeting? It seems uh, to Yeah, I mean, I I should probably be uh, vague about this, um, but I, you know, I did have a nine hour debrief with several different agencies after I went there for what was, I think, like a three hour meeting. So Mm. that was kind of interesting. Um, You went with Rohrabacher, right? I went with Rohrabacher, with Dana Rohrabacher, who has, you know, unfortunate ties with a lot of the Russian side of things. He's very Mm. Russophilic. Dana's hearing aids were not working through the meeting, or so he later claims. And, you know, Dana is a very nice man, but I think he's sort of all over the place on these issues. I should say, too, Dana was raising questions about Bill Browder, who had all these ties with Robert Maxwell and with uh, Edmund Safra uh, as well, who has their own ties with Mossad. And Dana was raising questions about him. So there's a lot of fights in our politics that are the Russians versus the Israelis versus the Chinese versus the Georgians versus the Ukrainians. And I think people oftentimes don't understand that there are these multiple operations running and they pick up assets, they discard them. It's like a professional wrestling almost in a way or or a sports team or something. And the alt-right versus alt-light fight, you know, in my view, it became a fight between the Israeli interests and the alt-light side, who had their own backing in large measure by the MBS regime or the MBZ regime out of uh, Saudi Arabia and, and UAE, respectively. So my view, just generally, for what it's worth, is there are all these ops running against Americans through social media. My view, I've made this argument publicly, I've said this to Peter Thiel, to others, that Facebook really needs to be brought to heel. You know, part of the reason we made Clearview was to de-link the biometrics you know, everybody's face from the advertising ecosystem, which was addicting people and controlling them. Mm. And so, you know, my view is that there's a role for lots of nerds to play in the world to come. And there are a lot of people who believe the Trump rhetoric, but the Trump substance was sort of missing. And I think that, you know, they want to reach out to me, you know, my, they contact me through my Substack or through any other, you know, on LinkedIn or what have you. But I think in general, if you're a neurologically different person, it's very wise to stay away from Twitter and Facebook and other things, television generally. And there's a lot of genetics actually behind people who get addicted to cults or who join cults. And I think that what we're seeing right now is sort of the quick creation of cults and of foreign operations through our social media. And that's extremely disturbing to me. And it's something that I think needs to be uh, called out and made public in in whatever way we can do it. Charles, we're running out of time, but I'm sure uh, we could go on forever. And I would hopefully hopefully come back on and talk about other things at different times. Um, I I do want to say- appreciate you having me. I know it wouldn't necessarily be easy, but I think it's important for people of different sides to come together on these kind of questions. I think it is important just to underline that, you know, I think there's not very much I would disagree with what you've said tonight and we've spoken off on, you know, on the phone or what have you. There's a lot more between Americans that are, we can agree on than we realize. I think, you know, this polarization this has been forced upon us and the Jan 6 collision was forced upon us. But take those things out of the mix. We actually probably agree on so much. That's right. Um, and- I, I, should, I should say when I hear people say national divorce and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, I had family members on the union side who fought in the civil war and like that, you know, nothing would make me, we have to stop the violence. We have to deescalate the situation. That also means 
by the way, that far left people need to take seriously some of the complaints of flyover America too. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just sort of treat them like they're other, you know, troglodyte Trump supporters. There needs to be much more. And, you know, our wealthy people need to do a much better job taking care of the li- least among us. And that means, you know, not selling their homes to Chinese property owners, mm-hmm. to basically keeping our society much more uh, of an attitude of e pluribus unum that we're all in this together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's uh, maybe today is one of those days where we finally learn that lesson and move ahead. You know, unity is not actually out of reach. It's just something we've got to get to. And I think uh, Joe Biden has a plan to get us there. So hopefully we'll find our way there. It's not just just up to him. It's up to a lot of us, you know, meeting together. And, you know, it's kind of like every family has its squabbles and fights, but it stays a family. And I think that's sort of how we should think about these sort of questions. 100%. 100%. Thank you, Charles Johnson, for being here tonight. Uh, you've told people how they can get a hold of you, not on Twitter, because that's what needs to happen. <laughs> we can talk about that some other time. But. <laughs> we will talk about it some other time. We'll love to have you back on the show. Thank you very much for spending uh, your January 6th evening with us tonight. And uh, hopefully we'll have you again here on Narrative Thanks soon. Thanks so much. Take Thank care. Thank you. And good night, everybody. Thank you for being on Narrative. Thank you for being here on Narrative tonight. We will be back tomorrow with the after show. But I leave you with Joe Biden. We're living at an inflection point in history, both at home and abroad. We're engaged anew in a struggle between democracy and autocracy. From China to Russia and beyond, they're betting that democracy's days are numbered. They've actually told me democracy is too slow, too bogged down by division to succeed in today's rapidly changing, complicated world. And they're betting. They're betting America will become more like them and less like us. They're betting that America is a place for the autocrat, the dictator, the strongman. I do not believe that. That is not who we are. That is not who we have ever been. And that is not who we should ever, ever be. Yes, in America, all people are created equal. We reject the view. If you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If I hold you down, I somehow lift myself up. The former president who lies about this election and the mob that attacked this Capitol could not be further away from the core American values. They want to rule or they will ruin. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.